собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле... Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Is the concept of race applicable to Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union? Citing Russian exceptionalism, many would argue, while nationalities mattered, race did not. Others, however, counter that race mattered no less in Russia than it did in Europe and in other nations. Either way, controversies over the meaning of race in Russia have made it difficult to understand recent racial tensions in the region. So, what are some of the ways to think about race in Russia, and how does it compare with race in other historical and geographical contexts? I asked David Rainbow to provide some insight into the ideologies of race in Russia and the Soviet Union. David Rainbow is an instructional assistant professor of history in the Honors College at the University of Houston. He's the editor of Ideologies of Race, Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union in Global Context, published by McGill-Queens University Press. Here's David Rainbow. David, um, why don't we start by just having you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, I am a teacher uh, of history at the Honors College at the University of Houston. I've been teaching there uh, for about five years now. I went to school at NYU where I did my PhD um, and you know, did, did research in Siberia and St. Petersburg and um, New York City and, and California uh, where I worked in archives for that project. And and you work on, on on what's called Siberian regionalism, um, and and what you call uh, Siberian patriotism. Um, so w- talk about what is Siberian patriotism, and and what are some of the larger themes that you've addressed in your in your dissertation in your work. Yeah, Siberian regionalism was a, it was a movement that emerged in the middle of the nineteenth century, um, really in the eighteen sixties during the the era of great reforms in the Russian Empire. And it was a, a kind of a, a, a small movement initially, especially among these Siberian, young Siberian intellectuals who wanted greater regional autonomy for Siberia. Um, early on in the 1860s, for, and for a short period, um, they understood that to be a kind of separatism. So there was... Uh, dabbling with the idea that uh, Siberian autonomy meant eventual separatism. So they called 
longingly they referred to their Siberian homeland as a future United States of Siberia. So they clearly thought that Siberia, like many other colonies uh, in the 19th century, was kind of destined to be um, independent. But <clears throat> for most of the period, especially after the 1860s, uh, they understood Siberian regionalism to be a kind of cultural autonomy uh, within Russia. Um, and they, you know, not only was it not politically advantageous to be advocating for separatism in the Tsarist empire, uh, they, they all got in trouble uh, with the law. But it was also that they came to realize that Siberian independence uh, wasn't possible because of a bunch of um, kind of social and political and cultural conditions of, you know, what they called, uh, you know, backwardness um, that they wanted to remedy. So throughout the period, I, I kind of, I study the movement from the 1860s up through the Russian Revolution and Civil War. And through most of that period, they were advocating for things like building schools and a university in Siberia. They, uh, they were pretty vehement critics of the exile system, which sent you know, as they saw, they saw, you know, a bunch of kind of, um, you know, bad apples to Siberia, which kept the region backwards. Uh, they developed uh, private presses in Siberia, were very active in that. They, and they advocated for indigenous peoples uh, at various points, and they wanted to kind of promote a sense of regional belonging. Um, I, do, I use the term patriotism um, in my writing about them uh, because they use that term. Um, so I, I don't mean by it to sort of romanticize the movement, um, uh, but rather to kind of capture the sense in which feel, the feeling of belonging was really important to them. So, uh, you know, a lot of what they're doing is aspirational. Um, there wasn't really a, you know, Siberia wasn't really a thing in any, in any um, absolute sense. It wasn't a country. It didn't have its own cohesive history. It wasn't even an administrative unit, a single administrative unit. So when they were talking about Siberian regionalism, Siberian patriotism, Siberian culture, um, it was all very aspirational. They were hoping to bring that into reality. Who are, were some of these people? Because, you know, were they, some of them former exiles? Were they settlers? Did they even have kind of a, a settler ideology that you find in other places in, in the world? And what was their relationship to the indigenous populations? The, sh the shortest answer was that these were um, children of Slavic settlers to Siberia um, from centuries past. So, you know, Russia started sending um, people east of the Ural Mountains in the 16th century during the time of Ivan the Terrible. And since that time, the empire had been building this series of outposts, uh, kind of more or less, you know, along the along what becomes the Trans-Siberian Railroad route, right, along the southern edge of the empire, um, all the way to the Pacific Ocean, and that formed the kind of the basis for Slavic settlement of 
of Siberia. So these were, they, they called them, um, they referred to more recent Russian settlers as, um, uh, you know, as, as new settlers, um, and as a way of distinguishing themselves who would have been, they would have considered themselves, you know, old settlers, like they had been the original Russian settlers. Their relationship with the indigenous population of, of Russia is very interesting. Um, and, you know, there, there isn't, there wasn't, there isn't one simple answer. Some of them, and I, I'll talk a little bit about this when I talk about um, their thinking in terms of race, uh, but they they saw themselves as, um, in many ways, as the the allies and kind of in in quite condescending terms in many cases the kind of spokespeople for the indigenous population, who they saw as having been, um, you know, exploited and mistreated and um, kind of left uh, left uncared for by the empire, um, which they wanted to remedy. Um, but they also had, um, they saw themselves as having integrated in many ways with the indigenous populations of Siberia um, through intermarriage and, and so on. I mean, that's that's really interesting, you know, coming from, uh, say, an American perspective where the relationship is far, far different and a far more violent one. Um, and, and that, of course, brings to the question of how this led you to think about and write about issues of, of race in, in the Russian imperial Russian context. So uh, how did you you get from Siberia and this Siberian patriotism movement to thinking about race? Yeah, one, one of the interesting parts of Siberian history, of course, is the fact that um, it, it, in the Russian context, it was the you know, the most, historically speaking, the most kind of, one of the most recent acquisitions to the empire, meaning, uh, well, let me scratch that. Uh, so going from, going from, so the, the Siberian experience, the experience of Russian settlement in Siberia um, obviously brought uh, these Slavic settlers, largely Slavic settlers, in into interaction with native populations who had been there, you know, for a really long time, and who um, had connections with other empires in in Asia, you know, that were more proximate. Um, there were, um, you know, there are a number of indigenous groups in Siberia who have closer um, ethnographic and religious ties to the Mongols, um, to the Chinese, and so forth. Um, not to mention uh, a, a large number of nomadic people that live up in the Arctic. Um, and so, one of the questions that the empire had to had to grapple with was how you know how are we going to relate to these people? And um, it it wasn't it was like you said it was very different than the Spanish or the British settlement of North and South America, um, and it's in quite striking ways. It's not the case that it wasn't ever violent. Um, it was. Um, it was. It was just 
that there was a, a wider range, let's say, of policies that the Russian Empire implemented with respect to the native populations. So these Siberian regionalists, when they're you know trying to come up with um, ideas about Rus uh, Siberian distinctiveness, right? They're kind of searching for bases on which to assert Siberian distinctiveness. Um, you know, Siberia has a different history. It has a different terrain. So they were kind of, you know, like a lot of thinkers in the 19th century, um, flirted with various aspects of geographical determinism. Um, but Siberia was also distinctive because it, it had this wide array of non-Slavic people. And so they, the Siberian regionalists themselves began to use race as one of several idioms um, to talk about Siberian distinctiveness. So that was kind of how I um, first started getting interested in it, is that simply, you know, my the characters whose writing I was following and um, whose arguments I was trying to map and trace and understand uh, were starting to develop this argument that Siberia was distinctive on racial grounds because people there, not only indigenous people, are racially distinct from Slavic people, but the Slavic people who moved to Siberia have now, they argued, have now become racially distinct from Slavic people west of the Urals. And, and when you when you encountered this kind of you know, discourse and ideology of race, um, did it, did it surprise you or did it just like, oh, of course, you know, we see this manifest in so many places around the world. So why not in Russia? So how did you deal with this fact? It, it did surprise me, uh, because, uh, I wasn't looking for it. You know, I guess that, uh, that always, that always surprises you when you find things that are unexpected, but you know, you, you find a lot of things that you're not expecting in historical research, which is what makes it kind of fun. What was different about this particular um, realization on my part um, was, was that race, of course, seems to be, uh, you know, so much a part of our own history as Americans. It's so much a part of Western European history. Um, and just in the literature that I had been reading from other historians, it, it's not it's not traditionally been a, a theme of uh, Russian historiography, and so I, I I didn't know exactly where to put it, um, uh, especially considering what the Siberian regionalists did with the concept of race, which was was very different than anything I had encountered in, you know, American um, or Western European uh, historiography. Yeah, yeah, so much so that it, it led you to uh, become the editor of this this very interesting collection of essays, and and I think it's it's a long time coming for something like this that that more historians that deal with Russia are giving serious attention to race and. And more importantly, trying to understand it within the Russian context and not seeing it as as an as simply an import or using you know American or European or understandings of race from other contexts and kind of slapping it on a Russian way. So, 
Um, so you have this book, Ideology. You edited this collection of essays that have essays from several scholars uh, titled Ideologies of Race, Imperial Russia, and the Soviet Union in Global Context. Um, what are some of the uh, goals of this book? The initial goal, or I guess the, the, the initial motivation, was to bring together um, Russian and Soviet scholars, so scholars of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, uh, the book covers um, mostly 19th and 20th century Russia, although s some of the contributors um, uh, do have some things to say about the post-Soviet period and, and more contemporary events. But it's mostly a, a kind of modern historical time frame. It, the goal was to bring together those scholars, anthropologists, um, some literary scholars, and um, historians with scholars from fields where race had been a central kind of analytical category for longer. So scholars from, uh, there's a, a historian of Germany, um, anthropologist of the Caribbean, um, historians of the United States, and, and so on. Places where um, race has been talked about for longer, and they have been, and I was curious to see what would happen with that um, mix, uh, to see what they had to say about what an increasing number of uh, scholars in the Russian field were, were talking about um, with race. So, and then, you know, the, the goal was to, to see what this comparison uh, produced, uh, to see whether or not we could understand some aspects of how people in Russia and the Soviet Union understood human difference better um, if we put it in the, a larger global context um, uh, of thinking about race. One of the first sections of your introduction is about the difficulty of finding race or understanding race in, in the Russian context. So why is it so challenging in the Russian and Soviet context to to understand race. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that that makes it so interesting to me to think about and and I also I, I think also uh, useful to think about and productive to think about because it's not um, it, it's not obvious um, how exactly race works or doesn't work in this context. So there are a couple of I mean there are a number of reasons why it's hard to see why it's been hard to, to see race in the Russian context. I mean, there are a few kind of straightforward historical reasons, one of which is that in Russia, in the empire, in the Soviet Union, and in the Russian Federation today, uh, race has, has never been a, a legal category, like it was and is in, you know, every every place that Spain and Britain colonized, you know, which was a lot, um, and, you know, m much of Western Europe, um, right, race for hundreds of years has been a kind of a, a central category for organizing, regulating, um, managing populations, population difference. Obviously, you know, population diversity is 
is a fact of life everywhere. Um, it's just not every place historically has developed the same kinds of legal categories to manage them. Um, so that's one reason. So if you go to the archives and you look at, you know, the topic indices or you're, you're looking for the word race or the word racism, um, you're not going to find it in the same way that you would find it in archives of other empires. The Another reason uh, has to do with a little bit more recent history, and that is that for the most of the 20th century during the during the Soviet period, um, the Soviet Union developed an explicitly anti-racist uh, stance, meaning that you know they inherited this um, absence, let's say, of using race as a legal category, but they kind of even upped the ante even more um, and emphasized the fact that they were not using race, that the Soviet Union was a, you know, friendship of peoples. And, um, and then during the World War II, well, really in the 1930s, it, it begins uh, with this explicit differentiation between uh, the communist world, which has transcended racial difference, um, and the fascist and the capitalist West, who, you know, this is the Jim Crow era, this is the rise of Nazi Germany, where you have like an explicit embrace of racist um, ideas and policies and legal statutes and, and everything else in all of the non or much of the non-communist world. Uh, so it was, a, it was a very useful way of the Soviet Union uh, to distinguish itself from the rest of the world. And so you're also not going to find, um, you know, uh, kind of, they don't ask in censuses in the Soviet Union, for instance, you know, what is your race? So a lot of the, a lot of the bureaucratic tools uh, that are used to manage the Soviet Union, which then become the sources for historians to understand what people are thinking, uh, were not using the same categories. So it, it kind of, for, you know, those reasons and, and others, it just wasn't on the radar. But both the empire and the Soviet Union had concepts, I mean, granted, they also ident categorized people differently. So in the imperial period, you have, you know, religious confession and you have estates. Um, but you also have both in the imperial and in the Soviet period, you have nationality and a concept of ethnicity. So how does that you know, some people might say, well, yeah, okay, so they didn't use race, but they had these other concepts that are, you know, about human difference and, and kind of have the same things as race and, and, and how we understand it, say, in the West. So what makes, say, nationality slash ethnicity not similar or the same as race as we understand it? That's one of the, the big questions is... Um, it, it's been it's it's obvious and and scholars have have been pointing this out for a really long time that the empire and the Soviet Union were you know in their own way were were very very interested in human diversity were very very interested in the uh, country's capacity to incorporate difference um, 
and spent a lot of time and attention trying to figure out exactly how to categorize that and think about it. So it's not at all the case that um, you know Russia didn't see difference or something like that. Um, the how nationality and ethnicity differ from racial categorization is it's a very tricky analytical question because of course scholars have to sort that out and think about that in order to you know use these concepts in their writing but it's also a complicated uh historical question meaning you know it's one thing to to have a really clear understanding of what's the difference between race and ethnicity and nationality for ourselves um that may or may not help you to explain what, you know, somebody in the 1870s thought about those different categorizations. Um, so that's a part of the trick is having to, um, or, you know, a part of the, the challenge is, is having to keep those, those definitions straight in our own minds um, as the, the, the tools that we're using, but also trying to tell the story about how those categories changed uh, and evolved and were deployed in various ways um, at, at various times. So you have understandings of ethnicity and you have nationality. I mean, so much so in the Soviet period, as you know, it's in passports. People have to declare a nationality. Um, in, the, in the Imperial Russian period, of course, there's the whole issue of Jews and the Pale of Settlement. Um, you, you certainly... Uh, while race isn't a, a dominant category of either abscription or self-identification, you have these others. And from the scholarship that's being produced is, you know, they're, they're trying to understand, for the lack of a better explanation, a kind of racialization of ethnicity, right? So I guess the the question is, is that, okay, how do you, I mean, I think actually think you answered it well. It's because it's a very, very difficult thing to figure out because the the idea of ethnicity kind of bumps up against ideas of race. So the question is 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 what does this mean, race as an ideology? The word or the term or the idea of, uh, of ideology itself is a bit of a loaded term. Um, you know, it's it's most popular version was Marx's version and ideology. And this is kind of the way that I think most people, you know, we, we tend to use this even in, in popular parlance and in the press and so forth, right? Ideology is something that's deceptive. It's something that's obscuring something that is real, you know, sort of more fundamental. So you say, um, you know, if you, you say that person is ideological, what you mean is that uh, you know, they're, they're advocating for their ideas, regardless of whether or not they match reality, or they're, they're kind of cynical, right? Ideology is a kind of cynical um, um, idea. Um, and that, that's not exactly how we're, we're using it in this book. Um, I, I kind of went back to a, a more, um, it's a, a bit of a more neutral way of thinking of ideology. So what we were interested in in this project was simply trying to understand how intellectual standpoints, right, or ideas are connected with experiences. 
how ideas affect and are affected by social and intellectual changes. So, so it's it's more of a um, uh, an effort to under to recognize from from the get go that ideas are going to be interacting with um, you know practices and 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 reality. So. Um, if we're trying to understand what race means in a given context uh, and what its effects are, uh, it we're we're trying to resist a little bit the the presupposition that we know exactly what we're going to find. I mean, this goes back to you know what I was trying to describe my experience of of encountering race in the archives, and and it was very it was a a process of the process of trying to understand what was going on was a process of having to, um, you know, kind of undo some of the preconceptions I had about how race ought to work in the late 19th century, right? This is the heyday of phrenology. And this is the, the kind of, you know, uh, the inception of German race science that turns so pernicious as we know in the 20th century. So it was, you know, that was always kind of how I was a, I was, that's what I was assuming I would find. And what I found was very different. Um, I mean, I, I want to kind of come back to the, the question of the nationality and ethnicity and race and the distinctions among those, um, uh, maybe from a, a different angle. I mean, you're asking why, uh, nationality say in the Soviet passport is, is not the same as race. Uh, you know, one one of the reasons I think is that the Soviet policymakers said it was different, um, and the reason why the Soviet Union was comfortable simultaneously insisting that you uh, claim your own nationality in legal documents, and also uh, decrying the racist policies and uh, around the capitalist West was that nationality was at least initially was thought to be evolutionary. It was something that could eventually uh, be transcended. Whereas, you know, with, with maybe the most dominant discourses about race in the 20th century, race was immutable and it was unchangeable. And so this was very important from the Soviet standpoint, that that nationality could be embraced precisely because it was historical. It was it you could point to a history where it emerged, and then you could also imagine a future where it had been transcended. Whereas race was talked about. I mean, they they sort of took it for the purposes of their official anti-racism. They took uh, at they took in some ways at face value, the kind of the Nazi and the, uh, the American definitions of race, the ones that, that maintain this idea of a kind of right purity race is by definition, this immutable characteristic that's hereditary. You have things in like in the U S uh, the one drop rule where, which is a sort of, you know, it's purity kind of, taken to its absurd extreme, right? It's, uh, it's, it's kind of, which underscores the point that it's immutable, right? It's, 
it's supposedly something that that is all or nothing. It's on or off. It's a kind of binary opposition. And the Soviets rejected that. Um, part of what we're doing in, in the book is to say, okay, uh, it's true that it's true that that was a, a dominant iteration of racial ideologies in the 20th century and in some historical circumstances, but it wasn't the only possible um, uh, kind of construal of what race could mean. Um, and, and so it, it, it's not the, it's not the only, um, it's not the only conversation that's happening around race. And if you kind of back up a little bit and, and don't take, um, you know, German race science in the 1930s as the kind of the, the only way that race can be conceived of, then, um, you start to see how race was not an all or nothing thing. It was not uh, simply about binary oppositions. In fact, it had, um, there, there's this history, if you go back to the 19th century, of uh, people talking about race uh, as a malleable characteristic, as something that can be defined in terms of mixing um, and parts and um, rather than all or nothing. You know, I'm I'm trying to like, uh, well, I'll just I'll just put it this way. So, it it seems one of the challenges in talking about race is first off, it's hard to separate it from, say, the history of racism, right? The discrimination, the oppression uh, of people based on their so-called race. Uh, this idea of racial purity, which, of course, the binary notion that you're either this race or that race, and if you're this race, you're good, and if you're this other race, you're bad. Uh, and it comes with all sorts of assumptions about you know one's biological, cultural, intellectual, etc. But then there's a kind of, for the lack of a better term, a kind of neutral uh, use of race that is merely a way to classify people, right? And that classification leads to, you know, all these other things that I just mentioned in terms of the ideology of racism is is in, in the Russian context, because I know that in the late 19th century and early 20th century, you do get a you do get some Russian anthro, uh, anthropologists thinking about and and being inspired by and influenced by work coming out of Western Europe about the about race can you speak to how you know the when the idea of race that is the in Russian rasa comes into Russia how do people treat this word in this concept one of the one of the uh, chapters in the book, uh, by a historian named Vera Toltz, talks at, at, at length about this history, about the history of um, how uh, Russian anthropo ethnographers and anthropologists begin in the 1850s and 60s talking, using the term rasa, um, using it interchangeably 
in many cases, I mean, demonstrably so, interchangeably with ethnic, with narodnost or ethnicity, with um, nationality, with tribe, with, um, you know, there, there's this kind of constellation, uh, which she calls this terminological disarray, right? So if you're, if you're, if you're going back to look for clarity in thinking about these differences, you're going to be disappointed, she argues. Um, the, but what she, uh, the, the other thing that she argues that I think is really important, and this speaks to your question, is that she, she argues that this terminological disarray and the, um, you know, kind of the struggle to come up with a clear concept of what exactly it is that we're talking about was not unique to the Russian case. In other words, this was, this was common in thinking about race um, in many other parts of the world as well. So it, part of the consequence of her chapter, but also the volume as a whole, is that, you know, we, you, you go, our task was to find out, you know, wh what's going on in Russia? What's distinctive? What's, what's di what makes Russia different here? And one of the things that we find in a number of ways is that, you know, Russia is a part of this larger story, that it's not exceptional um, with regard to race, even in spite of, you know, Soviet claims to the contrary, right? The Soviet Union is claiming to be exceptional with respect to race, and of course, a number of other things too. But it's claiming to be the kind of beacon of anti-racism in the world. And, uh, you know, we, we don't have to take their word for it any more than we have to take any of our historical actors' word for uh, what they're doing. Um, so sh she's, she's suggesting that, that the history of the, the Russian response to this term coming in um, is similar to what ethnographers and anthropologists and, and statespeople and policymakers are doing uh, in other contexts as well, which is to use it when it's useful, when, the, when it's seen to be useful, to deploy it in a variety of unpredictable ways, uh, you know, ranging from pernicious and malevolent um, and racist to, um, you know, people like my Siberian characters who's, who try, they kind of typify the range as well because they use it at certain times as a, a pejorative to say, you know, kind of racial degeneration is happening in Siberia, which is evidence of the failures of the Russian empire to develop the region. But then a decade later, they're using it in, in uh, what I think can be described as kind of an attempt at self-empowering ways where they're saying, uh, no, uh, Siberians have come to constitute a new kind of race and moreover a race that is better equipped to govern itself you know and they're they're drawing from they're reading all, all kinds of literature from all over the world these siberian characters and uh you know among them are like porfirio diaz in mexico uh at, at the same time making arguments about the the mestizo as as the kind of ideal racial type for colonial independence. This kind of discourse is very distinctive from the, you know, race as a, as a bludgeon for 
um, uh, discriminating, for uh, for separating, for dominating, which absolutely is, of, of course, being used in Russia and, and many other places. Um, but there's the, a simultaneous discourse in which race is this kind of um, potentially emancipatory uh, organizing principle. Um, it, it, people see that, it that way, I'll say. Um, you know, people see it as having, j just like nationality does it at the same time, right? I mean, nationality in the, in the late 19th century is another uh, way of uh, potentially mobilizing political action, social action. Um, and, you know, it, it has pernicious implications too. And let me ask you about this is issue of the Siberian mestizo, um, because I, first off, it, it's it's a fascinating thing to think about, right? Um, but also, I also thought about it in the context of um, some of the work that's being done on Russia, Alaska, and the Creole populations there, and particularly like what happens to the Creole population, which is Russian settlers and mixed with indigenous population in, in Alaska, what happens to this Creole population when <laughs> when the Americans take over? Anyways, but so what is this, talk about this emergence of the Siberian mestizo and and what, you know, elaborate more on what it's, its implications for understandings of race in Siberia. A number of writers, Siberian writers that I, that I look at, develop this idea that's you know, at, at the basis is a is meant to be a kind of ethnographic historical idea that Russians have been settling in the east of the Ural Mountains for at this point three hundred years in the nineteenth century, and uh, they were sent there with you know ver very little connection back to so-called metropolitan Russia. And a lot of them intermarried. Uh, the vast majority of them were men, so there weren't, you know, very many women there. And so there were, um, there was intermarriage, but there was also kind of living in proximity to indigenous populations in Siberia that they argued had these anthropological effects of change. And they, it's this is, you know, is kind of the. You know, it's race science in quotes, right? It's not, this is not any kind of, uh, their anthropological research was not always very robust. Um, but th these were the arguments that they were making. They, they argued that um, you could measure, uh, you know, the differences in the way that uh, Siberians, meaning, uh, so when they use the term Siberian, it's, it's referring to these Slavic settlers to the East, um, that Siberians uh, looked different than their um, Western Russian counterparts, that they uh, spoke different in many cases. They tried to measure kind of changes in language. They tried to measure changes in culture, that they, they behaved different. They were more freedom-loving, they thought, than, um, uh, than their Western Russian counterparts. And they ate different, and they intermarried, and so they they had this kind of, you know, ethnographic merging with the indigenous population. They they never claimed that that everybody had done this. Right? They didn't. They they were trying to 
measure the degrees of mixing, which was the phrase that they used, right? The degrees of kinship. They would use phrases like that, where it was seen as being on a spectrum, um, like that racial and ethnographic change could be measured in terms of proportions rather than all or nothing. In your in your discussions uh, in your work on on race in Siberia, how does this allow you to kind of understand it? in Russia as a whole? Like, what do you take away from it? Or or is your look at race in Siberia um, a very regional understanding? Siberia is interesting in the Russian context for at least a couple of reasons. I, the idea that um, racial mixing, right, which I've been, been talking about, rather than purity, uh, was the norm. Um, was not unique to Siberia. So these the Siberian regionalists that I write about, they're not inventing this idea. They're not the, the only ones talking in terms of, you know, degrees of kinship and so on. And um, a historian named Marina McGillner, who has a, a chapter in the book, but also has written a lot about uh, physical anthropology in this period, um, talks a lot about this. And she shows that this, this was a one of the um, prominent ways that Russian anthropologists thought about race was in terms of mixing and degrees of, of kinship and, and so on. And this kind of hybrid, there was a hybrid nature built into the concept. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that, you know, Siberia is a case study in this larger Russian context. It's not exceptional. Um, but, you know, and here's another reason why I think Siberia is interesting. Siberia is somewhat distinctive in that um, going all the way back to the 18th century, really, the, the territory in Russia east of the Ural Mountains was the destination for a number of kind of, you know, early anthropologists or, or ethnographers who wanted to figure out um, the consequences of diverse populations interacting, living in proximity to each other. And it was seen by you know, Western European and Russian uh, ethnographers as a, almost like a laboratory. They almost talked about it in terms of being this anthropological laboratory where you can where people have been living in proximity to each other um, for centuries and centuries, and let's go see what happens. And of course, you know, it's not the only place in the world where that um, is true, but from their perspective, it was very different than uh, the European col colonial settings, where the dominant trope and the thing that always struck, you know, European um imperialists was that they were like arriving at a new world, right? They were arriving at this new world where uh, there's, there hasn't been any contact. These people are totally separated. And so their experience was one of this kind of, um, you know, very dramatic confrontation. Whereas in Siberia, uh, it was seen to be a place where you could study a very different encounter. Um, and so, yeah, Siberia, so the, 
the people that I write about are, are playing on this idea that Siberia is distinctive in that it has been a place where uh, races and people and diversity has mixed and intermingled for long, for a long time. I wanted to ask you about one of the more provocative essays uh, in the collection, and it's a republication of Eric Weitz's article uh, um, that he wrote about race and um, the deportation, Stalin's deportation of ethnic groups in the late 30s and early in early 40s, and and he you know he has this provocative line um, that has been quoted many times, and, and it's quoted here in your introduction. He says that the deportations of ethnic ethnic cleansing of, of the late 30s and 40s uh, constituted a racial politics without the concept of race. Um, what is the what is what is the historiographical or how do historians deal with the fact that you do have, you know, ethnic cleansing, uh, particularly in the Soviet period, um, in terms of issues of race? White's article and then the forum that responded to it in Slavic Review back in 2002 was, you know, one of the starting points in my own thinking, and I suspect for a, a lot of people in the field, in, in starting to think about this question. Um, if your question is, your question is about, you know, what, what are the debates that continue um, around the, around the seeing deport, Stalinist deportations in racial terms? Yeah, I mean, because this is this is an example that really stands out, right? Because if you look at the the you know the history of ethnic cleansing in general, tends to have you know either overt, a racial racist underlying you know um, motivations, or implicit ones. So you know how do how do we deal? Or or I guess I'm more. What is your opinion of? this this line that he has which is a really interesting one and that is you know a racial politics without the concept of race i mean do you you know what do you think of that and and then you know how do we how do we understand those deportations um in terms of a racial politics let's say i don't know if you can i don't know if you can speak to that but i i think that people who are listening to this <laughs> are going to say but Wait a second, you know, so that's why I'm asking. You know, Weitz was arguing that that this in practice, this was about this was racialized, that we can understand this in terms of uh, racial politics because of its similarities in practice to what was going on in other parts of the world, you know, and Germany is or his, his main reference point, basically saying that, you know, that you, if you look at what the Soviet Union is doing, it's very hard to distinguish it from what Germany is doing with its various, you know, um, ethnic populations. And, but then he argued that they're doing this in spite of the fact that there's not a concept of race. And there, I think that the, the response from Francine Hirsch and others was, um, was on point, uh, you know, and she, she said, in fact, the Soviet Union does have a concept of race. Um, they, they do talk in terms of race and they have a, they have a particular idea of race, but it's not, a 
an idea of race that is connected to this policy because the justification for these, um, you know, kind of deportations was their national connection, their connection to, you know, fear of irredentism in some cases and, um, you know, and fear of connecting to, um, belligerent enemies in, in, in other cases, um, and then also understood in class terms. So in other words, the, the Soviets officially are, are justifying the deportations in terms that are, that accord with Marxist theory, that, that people's characteristics have to be understood in these evolutionary ways, uh, you know, that they, they kind of have the potential for changing and being transcended eventually, right? Class eventually is going to disappear and nationality is eventually, if not disappear, become irrelevant. Um, and that's, that's true at the level of, you know, the, the kind of official policy. I think, I think where whites was really telling us something new is that, um, well, that for one thing that you don't, you, you have to look at both the way it's being talked about and what is actually happening. And that's what we're trying to get at with this ideology approach of saying, you know, you don't have to take, you, you have to take people's discourse seriously. It matters. It matters what they're saying. It matters how words are being deployed. Um, you know, you don't simply say, well, you know, it's irrelevant what they're saying. Um, but on the other hand, you, you have to take seriously what they're doing and when you put those two things together, I think it's possible to come up with a, a, a more nuanced understanding of how, in fact, you know, and here's where I think Whites was, was right about um, the essentializing characteristics of the people that were being deported. So they were being essentialized, even if it was in class terms, right, that their class, well, you know, we have this with the Kulaks as well, that the kulaks are understood in terms of class, not in terms of race, but class has taken on a kind of immutable characteristics. It's hereditary. It's unchangeable. It's all or nothing, right? It, and so it starts to look more like race. And, right. And it's also passed down generations <laughs> right. in, to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Right, right, exactly. So it, it, it is it is a... It's still a debate, I mean, to be sure. And it's even in, you know, my struggling to talk about it in clear ways, I think is an indication that that it's a it's a debate that we need to keep having because it's not it's not the argument, you know, the book is not arguing uh that race explains everything, that race is somehow even the dominant um way of thinking about human diversity and difference in the Russian and Soviet cases. It's not, you know, meant to sort of supplant what we've been thinking for a long time, which is that uh, the empire thinks in terms of ethnicity and confession and the Soviet Union thinks in terms of class and nationality. It's not meant to supplant that. It's rather meant to say, you know, these are not, these are not mutually exclusive categories. Uh, even from their emergence in the 19th century, 
that they they worked together in these complicated ways. They have unpredictable outcomes, and they can be deployed in um, surprising and unforeseen ways by historical actors who had none of the anxiety that we as scholars have about maintaining a kind of conceptual purity of, you know, well, is this really race that we're talking about here, right? So they're, they're kind of weaving in and out and trying to capture the complexity of that story without, you know, the kind of annoying cop-out of, well, it's complicated, <laughs> you know, we're, st we're still trying to explain something and clarify something, but without, um, without oversimplifying. And I, I would also add, you know, to do justice to something intellectually at the same time trying to wrestle with our own historical baggage and experience with race and racism in our own, you know, historical, personal historical contexts. Um, and, and finally, and finally, you know, this this collection of essays is looking at race in Russia and the Soviet Union, but also putting it in a global context. So, how does the history of race in Russia help us think about the global history of race or the experience of race in other historical or geographical contexts? Yeah, I mean, the, the most obvious thing that we're trying to do is, is um, you know, trying to suggest that Russia is a part of this story. Um, not only in that Russia is incorporating, uh, seeking out, um, uh, discourses and and um, experiences of race around the world, which it was. They were reading European anthropologists. You know, Russians are um, paying attention to other colonial situations, but also um, they're they're influencing in in some cases. And there's a, a really interesting chapter on um, a, a Korean intellectual at the beginning of the 20th century who is developing and he's involved in this kind of you know ideas of pan-asianism and um, trying to you know this is in the the years before world war one and japan is becoming very dominant and um, this korean intellectual who studied in the u.s uh, traveled in russia was reading russian philosophers um, developed his own thinking about race, which was influential in the East Asian context, um, in response, in part, to what Russians were saying about, uh, you know, the so-called yellow peril and kind of fears, uh, fears and anxieties born out of having just gotten, you know, smashed by the Japanese empire, which shocked everybody in Russia. Um, and so Russia was, it, it's a dialectical process, right? So it's part of partly just putting Russia back into the story or into the story. Um, I mean, I think it also contributes to a, a global understanding of race because, um, because in many ways that we've been talking about, Russia, the Russian case was um, unfamiliar or it was distinctive. Um, and for instance, it didn't have a, a legal category of race um, in the imperial or, or Soviet periods. And that turns out to, um, I think, let us see some things that are harder to see in, in more familiar cases, let's say, like the conceptual confusion between nationality and ethnicity and race. Well, 
there was no conceptual confusion if you're looking at the legal codes in um, you know the United States at the beginning of the 19th century. You know, you would think that they had just figured it out beyond any shadow of a doubt, um, which of course is um, is is misleading um, as in historical terms, because it, it wasn't that clear. Um, this idea of malleability of, of races, that race um, in certain contexts uh, did not, was not considered to be kind of um, a de facto immutable characteristic. Um, and I, I hope that, that it, it continues a conversation. Uh, there are a lot of things that need to be um, understood better uh, and sorted out uh, more clearly. Uh, but I hope that it, you know, it, it kind of con contributes to that conversation and uh, makes us pause and think about um, what our assumptions are and were and um, how looking at the Russian case can kind of give us a, a, a better way of understanding something that, you know, has has had a lot of a lot of uh, destructive consequences in the modern world, um, and I think it it it's only good to understand it better. That was David Rainbow, an instructional assistant professor of history in the Honors College at the University of Houston. He's the editor of Ideologies of Race: Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union in Global Context, published by McGill Queens University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the Table of Ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, I want to thank my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. <laughs>